We are reading together in the scriptures of the Old Testament, uh, turning to page 894, Daniel chapter 9. Page 894. And this uh, reading lies at the heart of the era of the exile. And in many ways, this prayer that Daniel prays in the first part of the chapter, and then the revelation that is given in the second half of the chapter from verse 20 through to the end of the chapter, brings before us the different aspects of this era. Israel, the church in the Old Testament, is under God's judgment because of her covenant unfaithfulness. And in the midst of that covenant unfaithfulness, one needs to come from God who will live a life of perfect covenant obedience. And who will save his people from their disobedience. And Daniel is praying about these two. He's praying first of all about uh, Israel and her covenant disobedience. And then God reveals to him in this chapter. The one who will come and be marked by covenant obedience. The Christ. So let's read this passage together. In the first year of Darius son of Xerxes. A Mede by descent, who is made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. The exile, in other words, that he was experiencing and the church was experiencing, would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all those who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned. And done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel 
has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, Hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel the man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you. For you are highly esteemed, therefore consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens or seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's right through to the coming of Christ. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seventy sevens or seventy weeks and sixty-two 
sevens or weeks. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week or one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Amen. This evening being the third Lord's Day evening in the month, we're picking up on our series, Getting to Grips with the Bible. And can I remind you again briefly of the purpose of this series? It is to give you a grasp of the big picture that is developing or that develops in Scripture, so that you know the different eras and the different aspects of God's dealing, uh, dealings with his people in salvation. And then it is to enable you to place each book of Scripture in the era to which it belongs, and to show you how each book of Scripture in that era uh, looks to Jesus. Uh, tonight we come to era 6 and we have looked already at the era of beginnings, the era of the exodus, the era of the conquest, the era of the judges and the era of the kings. And each of these eras have left us looking outside of them, looking forward for one who will come who will be marked by obedience towards God and whose life will please God and whose life then will become and be a sacrifice for the sins of those in that era who have failed and fallen short of God's glory. And of course that is the story of your life and my life too. We are those who fall short of the glory of God. And we need one outside of ourselves who will live a life of obedience towards God and then who will offer that life as the sacrifice for our sins. And of course that one is Jesus and he has done that great work on our behalf. And so tonight we come to the era of the exile and there are things that we want to learn from this era as those tonight many of them, many of us who profess Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. This is the era in which God drove his people out of the land of Canaan and he took them into foreign lands 
We saw the last time a month ago how the ten northern tribes or families of God's people were taken captive into Assyria and they never returned as tribes or as families. There were individuals, there were groups that returned and joined Judah later but there was no mass return from the ten tribes. The two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, they were taken, we saw, at a later date into Babylon uh, and uh, held in captivity there. And in a month's time, we will look at how the Lord did bring back from Babylon um, a whole group of people from these two tribes, the remnant And they would be his people that would live and look and wait for the coming of Jesus. But even then, during that period, they would still fall. And so they would still need a saviour. So the era of the the exile that we come to tonight focuses on God's dealing, sorry, God's dealings with the two southern tribes, Benjamin and and Judah uh, that God uh, took into Babylon and God at the end of 70 years would bring them back again uh, from exile to Canaan. Now there are three books uh, of the Old Testament that belong to this era. There is the book of Lamentations and there is the book of Ezekiel and there is the book of Daniel. Uh, These three are prophecies, uh, lamentations, maybe not so much so. Uh, It's more a lament which Jeremiah, we believe, wrote uh, to mark um, the deportation of God's people away from Canaan into um, Babylon. It was an act of such magnitude. And such grief to Jeremiah that God should do this to the people that he'd saved out of Egypt. And it was uh, an act that caused such ripples of shock among God's people that Jeremiah wrote this book of Lamentations. And it's an expression of the grief and the sorrow that he has that God has had to do this to his people because of their sin. That's all that I'm going to say about Lamentations. It's a book that helps us to cope with disaster, personal disaster, family disaster, disaster in the church, disaster in the nation, and to see the hand of God over that. And then to lament that and to seek the Lord God in the midst of that. And to know that Christ is at work through it all. Now as we come then to look at the other two books tonight, Ezekiel and Daniel. And as we try to trace out what this whole era is about, we want to do so using this word covenant. This word covenant, it's what holds this whole period of 70 years together. In fact, uh, we believe as Reformed Presbyterians that covenant 
is what holds all of Scripture together. And covenant is what holds our lives together. Covenant is what marks our church. And that's why we're referred to as covenanters. But tonight we want to see this era in terms of covenant. God's saved people in the Old Testament are a covenant people bound to him uh, and um, he bound to them. And that's still true in the New Testament. To be saved is to be brought into covenant with God as we were singing there in Psalm 50 through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's to be part of his covenant people. It's to belong to his family. But we know that within any family, there are rules and there are guidelines within which we live and act. We know that especially with our children. And so it is the same within God's covenant, within God's family. God requires the people that he has saved to live in a certain way. He is a holy God. And his people are to be a holy people. And his holiness is expressed primarily in the Ten Commandments. As they come to bear upon the lives of his people in the Old Covenant and also in the New Covenant. And God says that when my saved people keep my covenant. When they live their lives within the framework of these ten laws, then I will bring blessing upon them. But if my people whom I've saved in Christ, if they turn away from this framework for their lives, and they say, I will treat the Sabbath whatever way I like, and I will worship other gods, and I will steal, and I will covet, and I will... uh, dishonour my parents and all the other commandments, if his safe people say that, then the Lord is going to bring curses. He's going to bring chastisement. He's going to bring judgment. Because then we are not reflecting his holiness. And so what is happening in the period of the exile is this, that the people for years now have been refusing to live as God's redeemed people. And they've been refusing to live as a holy people. And they've been going their own way. And we saw that the last time. And God sent them prophets to call them back to himself. And they've ignored those prophets. And so the Lord God now in the year of the exile brings his chastisement and his judgment upon them. And so the first thing we need to note tonight is that the about the year of the exile is that there has been and there is covenant failure. Covenant failure. Because God's people have failed him and turned away from him, then God, if you look at your sheet, scatters Judah and Benjamin. And he does so in three phases. He does so over an 18 year period. And in that too there is grace. 
because of the very first phase in 605 under Jehoiakim, the people should have realized. The people who were left in the land should have realized. Now God is speaking to us in such powerful ways of his judgment that it's going to come upon us too if we do not repent and change our ways and our living to reflect him. But they didn't. And so a second phase uh, of uh, deportation came in 597 during the reign of Jehoiakim. And even then the people didn't learn. And a third and final phase came in 587 when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Now we learn of this um, in the second kings, uh, in the history, the secondary history, we learn of these phases of God dealing and scattering his people because of their covenant failure, their refusal to have him as their Lord. The reality is that you and I today, we cannot say that Jesus is our saviour and not have him as our Lord. That's a contradiction. If he saves us from our sin, then we are to be his, his obedient people. And if someone says, I'm saved from my sin, but I will live whatever way I want, I will not follow the path of obedience, I will not deal with sin in my heart, then they have no right to believe that they are saved. In fact, they are deceived and still in their sins. And so then we have this covenant failure on the part of God's people. And they're scattered. And there's three consequences that come from this covenant failure. The nation loses her independence. And what is more significant, and she will never get her independence again until 1948 uh, with the formation of the nation of Israel. And that doesn't have any spiritual significance. doesn't mean that we're going to get a temple built in Israel again and that God's people are all going to be in Canaan again. Not a see and interpret the scriptures that way. But she lost her independence then. But what was more significant was that the glory of God departed from the temple. You remember how when the tabernacle was established and the temple was established, they were filled with the glory of God. That's where the presence of God was to be sought and found and God was to be known and God would work in salvation. Well, that glory now departs and the temple is destroyed. And then the people are scattered and in fact they're scattered to three locations. When you look at 2 Kings 23 and 25 carefully, they are scattered primarily to Babylon. But there's still some left in Judah. Uh, uh, Samuel talks, uh, sorry, Kings talks about the, the poor uh, and the uh, lowest ranking people being left. And they eke out an existence. And then... Uh, there was intermarriage in one thing or another and that's how you get the Samaritans growing up and the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans 
by the time of Christ. But then there was another group that went down to Egypt and fled to Egypt. And you read about that in 2 Kings 25 verses 25 and 26. Now in the midst of this covenant failure, God raises up Ezekiel. And so here now is where Ezekiel fits in in this period of covenant failure. When God is taking his people away in three phases from um, the land into captivity with these three consequences. Ezekiel actually went with the second phase into captivity. He was carried away with the second phase, that beginning in 597. And in 592, and we know it from Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 3, we can work out the date, he was called to be a prophet. Now Ezekiel himself came from the priestly line. And so he would have expected to have been a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. But now he becomes a prophet in Babylon. A prophet among God's people who are now settled, we're told, Ezekiel chapters 1 to 3, they are settled in Babylon along the Kibar River. That's in modern day Iraq. And you see, Babylon, when they conquered a nation, what they did was they took the people and they settled them together in an area of their land. And that's why you have this Jewish community at the river Kabar, and Ezekiel is now called by God at the age of 30 to be their prophet. And you see, that's the age he would have become a priest in the temple. And for the next 20 years, he is their prophet until 50. And at the age of 50, that's when you retired from being a priest in the temple. And so for the next 20 years, he speaks to them. In Ezekiel chapter 1 to 3, we have his call. And how the glory of God appears to him. And he senses God's call. In chapters 4 to 24, Ezekiel, um, in uh, the five years before Jerusalem finally fell, from 592 to 587, he speaks about the certainty of that happening. You see, though God had taken already two groups into captivity, there were still people back in Jerusalem who were saying, Jerusalem will never fall. The temple will never be destroyed. We are God's city. This is God's house. And Ezekiel says, no, no. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The city will fall. And the temple will be destroyed. And he keeps telling this to the community that is there already in Babylon. And he explains to them why. It's because of the sin that we have committed for years and generations. It's because of covenant failure. That we are already here in Babylon. And others are going to be brought to Babylon soon. So that's his ministry in chapters 4 to 24. Well then in chapters 25 to 32. 
Ezekiel looks around the nations that surround uh, Judah. And you see those nations, they were gloating. They were rubbing their hands with glee. And they were delighted at what was happening to God's people. And that they had now been taken away and conquered. And Ezekiel warns the nations. And he says judgment will also come upon the nations. Because they are even worse. They are completely and utterly caught up in idolatry. And so that's his message in chapters 25 to 32. And then we look at the final section, the next section, which takes us on then to covenant fulfillment. Covenant fulfillment. And Ezekiel in chapter 32, sorry, chapter 33 on, his message changes. It's no longer now a message of judgment, but becomes now a message of hope and a message of restoration. And you see, that's vitally important in ministry. It's vitally important for Johnny and myself and others who are ministers of the gospel or are training to be ministers of the gospel that we not only confront people with their sin and show the danger of that and the results of that, that the wages of sin are death. We also, like Ezekiel, have to show people that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that there is a way back, that there's a way of hope, there's a way of restoration. And so Ezekiel now speaks of covenant fulfillment. And all that God is looking for in his people in terms of faith and obedience. They're not going to be able to do it. But there's going to be one born of the woman who is going to do it. And that one is Jesus. And so now Ezekiel chapter 34 speaks of the return of God's glory. And I want us to note that the return of God's glory is not to a literal temple. The return of God's glory is going to be in his son and in his church. The Christian church. The church that takes in the nations of the earth. The return of God's glory in the shepherd king. Ezekiel chapter 34. The shepherds of Israel. The spiritual leaders have failed miserably. But God is going to raise up a shepherd king. He's going to raise up the Christ. Who will fulfill the covenant. And who will shepherd his people. And right the way through John 10. What did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. And what did he say then? There is one flock. One shepherd and one flock. And he's going to gather his people from the nations of the earth. There's hope and restoration in the new covenant. The old covenant has been broken. And there's going to be a new covenant. And we can't go into that tonight. But that new covenant is in Christ. And so um, it will be fulfilled in him. And again Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, reminds us that uh, the, it is in Christ that this is fulfilled. 
Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, the new covenant in my blood. You see, the old covenant was in the blood of the animals. And it couldn't save. But it pointed forward to the new covenant in the blood of Christ, in the blood of a sinless man that can save. And then we see hope and restoration in the work of regeneration. Ezekiel chapter 37, this valley of dry bones. And it takes the Spirit of God to come into them, to make them live. And you see John 3, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? That there's got to be a regeneration that takes place in the sinner. If you're not a Christian tonight, you're not a Christian tonight. You don't become a Christian by your efforts or your actions. You need to ask God to make you alive. To breathe life, spiritual life, eternal life into you. So that you embrace Christ as your Savior. And then this hope is going to come and it's going to be seen in this restoration in a united people. Chapter 37 verses 15 to 28. And this is not reuniting Judah and Israel, the ten and the two. This is what we find in Ephesians chapter 2. The Jew and the Gentile. The Greek and the barbarian. Being brought into the one family, the one church through Christ. So that there's no division. There's no division any longer. But then we have covenant fulfillment also and hope and restoration in a final victory. Chapter 38 verse 1 to chapter 39 verse 29. Gog and Magog. And there's a lot of things going around in the world today about Gog and Magog uh, and Israel. And it's not about that at all. It takes us right through to Revelation. It takes us through to the final uh, the the world against the church uh, and uh, the evil against um, Christ's kingdom and the victory being uh, won by Christ, the victory at Calvary being demonstrated and realized in the coming of the Christ again when all the nations of the earth will be forced to bow the knee and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Covenant fulfillment in his final victory. And then covenant fulfillment. And hope and restoration brought in a new temple. And seen in the new temple. Chapters 40 to 48. And this is not about building a temple anywhere in Israel. This is about Christ being the temple of God and the church being the temple of God. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, We beheld his glory. You see the glory of God taken from the temple. When was it seen again? It was seen in his son coming to this earth. It was seen in the miracles that he did, the life he lived. Striking that the apostles write about that and talk about that. We beheld his glory. 
when the first miracle was done at Cana of Galilee, we read words to the fact that Jesus revealed his glory. You see, the glory of God dwells in a person, his son. And then the glory of God dwells in you and me as we're saved through his son. So that you and I are the temple of God. How we should pray that the glory of God as it filled the temple in the Old Testament. It would fill us more and more so that people see God and meet God and know God and Christ through our lives. And again that takes us right the way through. Uh, to Revelation chapter 11, 15 and 21, when it sees the people of God gathered from all the nations. And here now is the temple complete. And here is now the temple resplendent and beautiful. And now she is the body of God's people, inhabited by God and praising him and serving him. So with covenant failure, with covenant fulfilment. We have what the people were. In their sin. And under God's judgment. We have what um, would happen in Christ. And Christ was the hope of making people what they ought to be. And what they should be. And then thirdly we have covenant faithfulness. Because in Daniel. We have a wonderful example of God already doing this and making a man and his friends uh, stand for him and they are in covenant relationship with him and they are not um, guilty of this covenant rebellion they are they're living with him and they're serving him and so we come then to the third section Daniel and his three friends, just to locate them again in the, within the phases of the captivity. They were taken during the first phase into Babylon. So they were taken in 605, just as Ezekiel was taken in the second phase, 597. And Daniel was probably in his mid-teens. He was one of the Jewish nobles. And you see, that was what Nebuchadnezzar did in the first phase. He uh, took tribute uh, from Jehoiakim and he made him pay a lot of money. And then he took the cream uh, and the best of the Jewish young men. And he said, I will, I will secularize them. I will make them servants of my kingdom in Babylon. And how wrong he was. Because they belonged to God's kingdom. And they were in covenant fellowship and covenant obedience. They stood apart from many of their fellow men. And they were living within the framework of, yes, we're a safe people. And we're an obedient people. We live and we serve our Lord in the light of his commandments. And it was because Daniel was like that at home that he was then like that in Babylon. And he refused the food and the wine of the king 
because he would not corrupt himself with anything that his God did not want him to have in his being. And so Daniel is a very, very powerful um, message to you and to me about living for Christ. And yes, the world today, it wants to secularize you and me. It wants to make us think like it and act like it as, as Nebuchadnezzar tried to do with these men. But our calling is to be true to our Saviour. And to say we cannot eat, we cannot drink, we cannot be merry and just live and throw everything to the world and live as if there's no God. We walk in paths of faith and obedience to the Lord. And so Daniel and his three friends are examples of covenant faithfulness. And a very powerful challenge to you and me of how to live for our Lord Jesus Christ in our day and generation. Daniel, as I said, was probably in his mid-teens when he was taken into Babylon. And he spent the rest of his life there. Bear in mind that the captivity lasted for 70 years. And it means that by the end of the captivity, he's a man of about 85 years of age. He's a man too old to make the journey back to Jerusalem. But you see, it doesn't matter about making the journey back to Jerusalem for Daniel. Because his heart has always been in Jerusalem. And three times a day, over those 70 years that he was in Babylon, he looked to the God that he had known, the God who had saved him in Jerusalem, the God who had taken him from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he made that God the focus of his life and his service. And this man, Daniel, rose to the highest ranks of Babylonian and Persian civil service. Kings came and kings went. But for 70 years, this man of God remained at the heart of the affairs of this pagan and ungodly nation. And I hope that encourages you. Because whatever the days of your pilgrimage on this earth, as you seek Christ day by day in the word and in prayer, you can matter and you can stand for your Saviour and you can live for your Saviour all the days of your life. And your heart is in heaven while your body and your life is on this earth. Now let's notice very quickly uh, the Breakdown of Daniel and the prophecy and or the book about him. Chapters 1 are the book that's called after him. Chapters 1 to 6 are biographical. Talking about the toings and froings of this man. The challenges, the pressures, the attempts that were made to conform this man to this world. But he would be transformed day by day by the renewing of his mind. 
in Christ Jesus. He refused to be moulded by the world. Didn't matter what king. Didn't matter what nation or what empire. Didn't matter what threats were made against him and his friends. And that's very powerful. Because we're living in a day when government wants to shape and mould Christians. And the Christian church to worship the God that government thinks we should be worshipping. And we have to refuse to be conformed to this world. And we've got to allow our minds to be transformed day by day into the image of Christ Jesus. That's chapters 1 to 6. But then chapters 7 to 12. They're the tricky chapters, aren't they? And they contain four visions. Four visions. In which Daniel sees an outline of the history of the final centuries before the coming of the Christ. Notice that. That's what those uh, chapters are about. An outline of the history of the final centuries. From 535. The countdown. The 4th century. The 3rd century. The 2nd century. Right down to the time of the coming of the Christ. And we read chapter 9. Because at the centre of these visions lies chapter 9. Daniel's prayer, the first half. His prayer of confession. Seeking that God in his grace and mercy would forgive the failure of his covenant people. And by the way, that's what we are to do about the church today. As we see the wider Christian church and as we see within our own church covenant failure, we're not to stand in condemnation. We're not to stand apart as those who are holier than thou. But rather we're to enter into the mindset of the church and the mindset of God's covenant and were to plead for covenant mercy and grace upon his church. Yes, we speak against sin, but not just speak against sin. We pray to God for mercy in Christ to overcome sin. And if we simply condemn the church, we are failing our Savior and we're not being like either him or Daniel who went before him. And then he's praying that God would not only forgive his people but that he would fulfill his covenant. It's very striking in chapter 9 verse 4. It says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. It's a covenant mindset that he has. And then at the very end of the chapter, he talks again about uh, the covenant. In verse 27, here's his prophecy now that's given to him. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, the theme of Daniel, before we come to, uh, sorry, I mentioned, intend to mention this earlier. There is a theme that runs through Daniel. And let me just say it now before I come to speak about uh, these uh, weeks here in closing. 
The theme of Daniel is this, that we see again and again, both in the biographical and also in the prophetic. It is this, surely your God, Daniel's God, is the God. Surely your God, as Nebuchadnezzar said, is the God who does what? He rules over the affairs of men. He rescues his people from their enemies and he redeems from sin. So Daniel then in this chapter 9 takes us right up to the coming of Christ. And this vision of the 70 weeks, chapter 9 verses 20 to 27. Here's how it divides up as as I look at it and as I've uh, obtained help from others to understand it. There's seven weeks, and there's 62 weeks, and there's one week, which makes 70 weeks in total. Now, the weeks are not literal weeks. They're long periods of time. The seven weeks are the period from Cyrus's proclamation, uh, because this is where the book ends with Cyrus now becoming the emperor, And now saying to the Jews, as Daniel prayed, the 70 years, uh, Daniel had prayed that the 70 years would be over. And Cyrus says, you can go back home. And so we'll come to that the next time, the return. But the seven weeks cover the period from Cyrus announcing that they could leave Babylon through to the rebuilding of the temple and the city. In other words, through to the time of Nehemiah. That's the seven weeks. The 62 weeks stretch from Nehemiah, who rebuilt the temple, uh, or who rebuilt Jerusalem's walls, uh, through to Jesus and his baptism. And then the one week, the final week, takes us into Jesus' ministry and mission. That's the 70 weeks uh, as um, I think they're best understood. What a wonderful thing that Daniel sees this and understands what God is going to do, how he's going to work from Cyrus's proclamation to the building of the temple. And then from Nehemiah, To the coming of Jesus. Raising up kingdoms. Bringing kingdoms to nothing. And then the king himself coming. And living and dying. And rising again. For salvation. And you see it is in the king. That ultimately there is covenant faithfulness. Yes Daniel was marked by covenant faithfulness. But what was the secret of his covenant faithfulness? The secret was the Christ that he looked to. And yes, we have, um, can I put it like this, almost a faultless presentation of Daniel. We don't see any major flaws in this man in the book, but we can be sure there were major flaws. And it's only in Christ, our Saviour, that there are no major flaws. So, the period, the era of the exile covenant failure covenant fulfilment covenant faithfulness in a sentence or two 
What are we to learn uh, for our lives from this spread? That is in addition to the things I've mentioned already. Why is this era of church history important? Well, it's important for this reason. It warns us of the danger of covenant failure. The danger of covenant failure in your life and my life. The danger of saying, I've been saved by Christ, but then living like the world. If we are the Lord's saved people and we try to live like the world, we will experience his judgment. It's also uh, the era from which we learn of the reality of covenant fulfillment. That it is only in Christ that we are saved. And it's only by walking with Christ day by day that you and I are kept from the world around us. And so then we learn from Daniel and from this era how to live the life of covenant faithfulness. How to live in relationship with Christ from day to day. It is a sad era on one hand, but it is also a glorious era on the other hand, as we see God's grace at work in the midst of man's sin and man's failure. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we bless you tonight for your covenant, your covenant of grace. We thank you that you have established it in Jesus Christ, your Son, that in him there is the forgiveness of sins, that in him there is new life, that in him there is the power to live for you day by day. And we thank you that he is the one who has fulfilled the covenant. We thank you that he is the one who was faithful in his father's house. And we ask, Almighty God, that you would change us by your grace. We pray for any who are not yet in the covenant, any who do not yet belong to the family of God, that tonight you would call them to repent of their sin, to look to Jesus, to be saved. And, O Lord, for those of us tonight who profess to be saved, grant that we would be marked by the kind of covenant faithfulness that marked Daniel, your servant, for 70 years of his life in this pagan and secular society of Babylon. Help us to live for you in a pagan and secular world today and to count for you and to matter for you and to know that we can do it by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ at work in us. Help us like him to keep the covenant and to be marred by faithfulness. Forgive our sin in Jesus' name. Amen.